0: There can be issues with losing estrogen, especially in the context of our modern world. And we can talk about that a little bit. And especially in the context of insulin resistance, which we'll talk about. But for our ancestors who didn't have insulin resistance, I think the shift to lower estrogen was not a big deal for them. So just to say again, you know, I I sort of now from the other side of it, I look back at 30 to 40 years of menstrual cycles and making lots of estrogen and progesterone. That was a very special time, but it had to end. It's not meant to last forever. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast.
1: I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy, and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. On Labor Day last Monday, I turned 42 years old. And one of the things that I've heard from more women than I can count, including all the hormone experts, is that when you turn 42, 43, your hormones really crash. That's when perimenopause starts to really hit. Now, I am glad to report that I have not fallen off of the proverbial perimenopause cliff. And honestly, I don't intend to anytime soon. I am stepping into my 40s with a clear intention to feel good in my body and to have metabolic flexibility, which I have really worked hard to create over the last year. Now, if you want to hear more about how I've boosted my metabolism by working out less and optimizing my blood sugar, go back and check out episode 299. I just recorded it a couple weeks back. Now, despite being in the first year of motherhood, I am rocking my hormones because I am super focused on pivoting as my body pivots. Because here's the deal, perimenopause, it changes everything. It's an epic transition that we've got to acknowledge and focus on. But what I know to be true is if you choose to adopt a great mindset, believe that you deserve a body that works for you, and you are open to making changes as your body changes, you can thrive in your 40s and beyond. Now, I've watched my mom do it. Even after a very turbulent time during perimenopause, these last 10 years for my mom have been amazing because she decided to focus on loving her body and create a mindset of living her best life. I'm excited to follow her example and saunter through perimenopause and menopause with lots of ease, grace, and most importantly, energy. Now, I am not the only one that believes that you can live this truth. My dear friend and fellow hormone expert, Dr. Laura Brighton, joins me today to share her secret sauce on how to have healthy hormones in your 40s. And by having healthy hormones in your 40s, you've really set yourself up for success in your 50s and beyond. Plus, who doesn't want to have hormone harmony for as long as possible? Now, Laura and I both released our books about perimenopause and menopause earlier this year because we both felt equally that there just wasn't enough solid information on how women could navigate this critical transition. The EO Menopause Solution and the Hormone Repair Manual, both books are research-based solutions and provides an understanding for what is happening during this incredible transition in our lives. Now, both books will be in the show notes for this episode, so go and check them out. Now, before I bring Laura on, I want to quickly sing her praises. Laura Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and the author of the best-selling books, Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. She has more than 20 years experience in women's health and currently is in practice in New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone-related health problems. Let's welcome her to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Laura Brighton. How are you doing today, girl? Pretty good, Marissa. Really nice to see you again. It is so nice to see you. Actually, I had been waiting on bated breath to have this conversation with you. And I know you had to reschedule a couple times and I'm just like, Oh, cause I, I would know early in the week that it was coming. And I'm like, Oh, I have an interview with this amazing woman on Thursday. And then all of a sudden I'd look and I'm like, poof, it's gone. And I'm like, she must, you know, life is busy and things are busy. So today is the day we get to have this amazing conversation. Awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. We're talking about healthy hormones in our 40s. And I'm so excited for this conversation cuz some women are be like, "What hormones in my 40s? <laughs> I don't even feel no hormones anymore. Like what's going on in my 40s?" And so you have also a new book out that I'm so so excited about. We're going to be talking about that too and a lot we go you go deeper in this book. So if you're listening to this today and you're hearing some of our conversation and you're just like I need more hormone literacy. I need to know what's happening. Girl, go get her book. Go get, it's on Amazon. You know, what I'm saying like it's everywhere books are sold. Yes. Um and soon it's going to be on Audible.
0: Yeah, I'm doing the, the audio print. recording. So this is the book. It's Hormone Repair Manual. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah, it's on print obviously, it's on ebook and I and I'm doing my own audio for the audiobook, so hopefully it turns out well. I
1: just want to take a moment and honor you for that. I don't even get offered. They're like, here's your people, choose one of these three women, you know. And so, and I really appreciate that cuz even I do big solo episodes on this show and I I curate all that content and like read it and ooh, even an hour of reading. You know, it just I I'm sending you so much so much amazing amazing audible energy as you read your book, because I know you're going to rock it, but I know it takes a little bit of time. It does. Yeah. Thank you. It does. Okay. Healthy hormones. Tell me what healthy hormones can we be expecting in our forties? Because as you love to speak to it, it's our second puberty. And actually, could you just go, let's go back a little bit, because I don't think we realize how long puberty is for us as when we're little, when we're little girls. And that that is a journey that so often it's kind of brushed to the wayside and that this is kind of the same length, maybe even longer in the transition out.
0: Both first and second puberty can last up to about 10 years and they're, they're quite parallel. So first puberty, we go from the low hormone state of childhood into first estrogen goes up, starts spiking up before progesterone kicks in before the menstrual cycle has matured enough to ovulate and make progesterone and that's why girls at that age can get kind of crazy heavy periods and migraines and and things kind of flaring up it can be a challenging time often that's temporary and at the same time as in my first book I talk about lots of ways to give support to those girls so they don't have to shut it all down by going on the pill, for example. But first puberty is this process of maturation of the reproductive cycle, the menstrual cycle. And then we're in that for a good, you know, three and a half decades, kind of 30, 40 years. We may or may not have babies, but it should all be happening during those years. And then from about our late 30s or into our 40s or The age is genetic, so it will vary from woman to woman. But as early as our late 30s, we enter perimenopause or second puberty. And that is the reverse sequence of events. So first, progesterone drops away. Progesterone is the precious hormone that it's so hard to make. Progesterone drops away, starts to drop away. And estrogen starts to spike up to three times what it was during our reproductive years at times, up and down, up and down and then eventually we move into a lower estrogen state kind of similar to the childhood state and that whole process can take anywhere between kind of 7 to 10 years and people might experience symptoms for anywhere from 2 to 10 years it's it's spread over four phases which i talk about in the new book about you know phase 1 when periods are still regular but you're starting to notice symptoms phase 2 th- you know into phase 4 which is the what I call the waiting room it's where I am now wondering wondering was that period six months ago my last period (laughs) or not and you know that and then if once you pass that 12 months then you achieve or graduate to menopause and menopause is can be a much calmer place so if there are going to be symptoms during second puberty it's all during these years in our 40s which is one of the messages as you may know from my book and on social media I'm trying to explain to alert women that symptoms could start a lot earlier than you think. Like a lot of people tend to think, oh, menopause is often what into my 50s or 60s. I'm like it's not in your 60s. <laughs> Believe me, it's much earlier than that. It's in your 40s. And it's not about aging, really. It's about this second, this transition. Mm.
1: I agree 100%. And I'm so glad you've given us so much clarity across the board in terms of when it could start and then when it ends. And then, yes, I think a lot of us have been told that it's menopause, that 12-moment that, that, that defining moment, that that's where things hit the fan. And we just got the messages completely confused and wrong. And no wonder women at 58 or 62 are coming to you and are like, is this menopause? Like what's going on with me? And you're like, okay, no, that, what's, you're not in that anymore. Real quick, I have a, a quick question I wanna ask you because I've been asking a lot of my experts. Once you hit menopause, I know you're in the waiting room right now and you hit menopause, it's 12 months, no period. Waha, we're here. And do you, do you just call it menopause from there on out? Or do you have other languaging after that? Okay, I do too. You and yeah. I are very aligned on that. Yeah. And so I'm glad. Okay, there's a lot of different like post menopause and da, da da da, and so I just am like you're there and you're just gonna you get to cruise in there, you know, in that in that beautiful phase in your life.
0: Yeah, the life. So in my, I use the definitions of Professor Geraldine Pryor, who helped me with this book. She's an endocrinology professor. She says perimenopause is the transition, including the you know one to however many years after the final period until you achieve menopause, and then menopause is the life phase that begins one year after the final period. So it's the next 30 to 40 years. It's it's a big chunk of our life, actually.
1: It is. Yes. And I agree with her and agree with you. That's how I love to decide. I, I feel like postmenopause is just a redundant term. And it just, it feels older, you know what I'm saying? And if you were attributing languaging around, you know, our life phases. Anyway, it was just a quick question I wanted yeah. to ask. I was just curious where you stood on that. I felt like I knew it. Okay, so we we got the landscape of what is happening with progesterone and then estrogen and how they shift into those four phases. But let's talk about healthy hormones because I think a lot of women, you know, this decline has been has been shared as if that it's a decline in age too. I feel like there's a lot of not my favorite languaging around the decline of these hormones. And it makes it sound like so many women come to me and they're like, I have no progesterone. I have no estrogen or my estrogen's all over the place. And it sounds like so often I think women feel like that's that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen. And so I would love for you to kind of dive into what should we experience when our even when our hormones are going through this or when they're kind of health-wise going through this transition? Or is it just a hot mess? Like it just doesn't, Okay.
0: There's so much there. I'm trying to think how to approach this. So in the book, in my, my book, I talk about how menopause evolved. People can sort of look at that section. It's It's because I'm an evolutionary biologist by training originally. So I see a lot of things through that lens. It is not just an accident of living too long. There's several lines of evidence that for as long as we've been human, which is a couple hundred thousand years, there's been menopause and then women in their 50s, 60s, and even to the 70s, even in ancient people were beneficial to the group. So there's kind of this argument, like the science suggests that it's no accident that we've, are physiologically and for the purposes of, you know, passing on our genes and, and as, as an adaptation, we stop reproducing at around 45, 50 we stop making our own babies then and we shift into gear of basically looking after everyone else, all our relatives, grandchildren, if you have grandchildren, yeah, which doesn't matter. I mean, I had, I had a comment on Twitter saying, well, you know, this grandmother hypothesis of menopause, what does that mean for those of us who haven't had children? Well, I'm one of those, I don't have grandchildren and I'm never going to have grandchildren, but I don't, I still find it very profound to understand that this whole process is taking place. Because of all the generations, thousands of generations of grandmothers who were in their prime, really. In what we know from modern day forager people, traditional lifestyle, people living traditional lifestyles, women in their 50s, 60s and 70s gather more food, get more stuff done than any other demographic.
1: Yeah, they were the ones who led people to the next, to the food, to the water, to the next place that the families in the in the in the whole community were going to
0: survive and thrive. These were who we turned to. For sure. So it's a very valuable phase of life. We're doing it, our body's doing it intentionally. So just this is all to kind of take away from this narrative that or myth. This myth that once our ovaries move it, you know, switch in intentionally switch into menopause, then it's because we're unhealthy or we're old or life is over. It's none of that at all. The way I see it now in in my book, you would have seen my little, I have a section of the book called return to girlhood. I've got this through my biology lens and clinician lens. I've kind of got this new view that the basic female physiology is non reproductive. Like we're children. And then we're, you know, we're reproductive in our reproductive years for 30 or 40 years. That's a very special time. But then we revert back to kind of our baseline female physiology, which is a low hormone state. So, this and this pros and cons to that, you know, I think, again, one of the narratives is that as soon as we lose estrogen, our health declines. I would challenge that. I think that's. There can be issues with losing estrogen, especially in the context of our modern world. And we can talk about that a little bit. And especially in the context of insulin resistance, which we'll talk about. But for our ancestors who didn't have insulin resistance, I think the shift to lower estrogen was not a big deal for them. So just to say again, you know, I, I sort of now from the other side of it, I look back at 30 to 40 years of menstrual cycles and making lots of estrogen and progesterone. That was a very special time, but it had to end. It's not meant to last forever
1: when i think we we have evidence with other cultures even in our modern world maybe they're not living the modern craze they're not living the crazy modern lifestyle that that many of us have adopted and that that the de- decline in estrogen and progesterone really isn't that big of a deal there are definitely they don't even have a word for it yeah women
0: in traditional societies are living a traditional lifestyle today do not they? They know all about menopause. They know you stop right. having babies and stop, or you know, stop having periods, stop having babies. But they generally view it as a good thing. They don't associate any condition. S- they don't associate any symptoms with it. It's very much in our culture that we have sort of medicalized it. And I say that at the same time, acknowledging that symptoms can be real, not can be. I mean, they often they are very real for some women. Definitely very real. Some of that is from the phrase is like evolutionary mismatch like our physiology not fitting well with our modern environment in lots of different ways which is no fault of women right it's not it's not your women's fault that we're exposed to environmental toxins that we live in a food environment that is very unhealthy to the kind of the microbiome and insulin sensitivity and hormonal health in general that our circadian rhythm is affected by all the nighttime light that we're exposed to that we don't move as much because we have to sit inside a, at a desk and all these things conspire to potentially make what should have been quite an easy transition into a time of symptoms.
1: I so appreciate the clarification. I appreciate the history. There are definitely, you know, how we've medicalized this and and also myths around, you know, women weren't surviving they weren't going, they weren't getting a menopause. And I was like, that is just not true either. And so I wanted to just speak into, but that's really, that is what we're leveraging as an, a reason, a reason for hormone therapy is that, well, we, we died before we ran out of these hormones. So now that we're living this long, we absolutely need these hormones to continue.
0: So I agree with you. I think it's part of, it's a marketing strategy. Now, just right at this point in the interview, I will say to everyone listening, I'm generally in favor of hormone therapy. So I'm not anti, like, I, you know, I, in the book, you'll see, I talk a lot about when hormone different hormone therapies can be helpful. Estrogen, but also real progesterone or body identical progesterone can be helpful. So it's possible to have this conversation about how, you know, menopause is not new, that traditionally it was not associated with symptoms, that there are various reasons why it might you know, create symptoms now, perimenopause, not menopause, but the transition perimenopause. And that there's no reason inherently that we can never say that all women should take estrogen because, you know, menopause is not natural. That's not an accurate thing to say, which is exactly the myth you're debunking. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that taking hormones can be helpful.
1: Yes. Absolutely. So I wanted to debunk the myth that the marketing ploy around like hormones are going to fix your everything and this is a condition you're in and all the, you know, all the things, all the stuff that's been wrapped into this. And you and I have had really incredible, productive conversations, particularly around progesterone and how beneficial that can be in perimenopause. And then even where estrogen can come in and be favorable as well. Again, I know that you go through this a lot more in detail in the book, too. You know where it's more when it's when it's favorable. When when we should look at history and family history, health history, and then also you know what what is the duration where we feel very safe. Recommending these, everybody's different. But as we get older, maybe they are counterintuitive at times for yeah. some women.
0: Well, one of the main things to understand is there's a a window. I call it the estrogen window. Window of opportunity. I sort of lost the word yes. that I used in the book, but when taking estrogen can be helpful more than if if it's ten or more years after the final period, the advice is really not to commence estrogen at that time. If you're still on estrogen, that may be okay. But like, not to start estrogen too much after menopause because that's when it can yeah. be dangerous so let's touch on progesterone because i know we've talked yeah, about it before i think we have a previous podcast or on your summit we talked about it we'll have to you can direct people to our previous conversations as well but today just to as review when we say progesterone we're talking about real progesterone not not progestins and one of the main messages of a lot of my work both books and my blog my blog posts and is to really make that clear that progestins, contraceptive drugs, you know, classic progestins used as part of older types of hormone therapy, are different from progesterone. And real progesterone, which you can now get as part of traditional hormone or part of conventional hormone therapy, as in the form of prometrium in the, in the US, it's called utergestin, and other the brand name is utergestin in other parts of the world is body identical or natural progesterone. It's exactly identical to human progesterone, which is so much safer for the breasts and for the brain usually. And yeah, so that's just an important takeaway at this point in our conversation, I think.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And where I know you have found it to be extremely helpful, I know this is where I have found it to be extremely helpful, is really towards that phase three Potentially phase two, phase three of perimenopause. Yes. Because th- that's where the decline really hurts.
0: <laughs> it's true. That's where progesterone was wavering in phase one and then in phase two and three it just conks out. Yes. And what are some of, the, some of the benefits?
1: I think mood support is where it shows up for, it's a stress protective hormone. So it helps us kind of modulate a lot of the the, the modern lifestyle that we're dealing with. I think also it can be very calming for kind of setting down, shutting down the mental chatter. Clearly there's a lot of benefits for progesterone, but I feel like that's a lot of what women can kind of ex- be experiencing during phase one, and phase two and phase three, kind of 42 to 40 Let's say 50. Again, everyone's different.
0: For sure. So, I have the three main kind of therapeutic times when in the book, when I talk about using progesterone alone, be migraine prevention, perimenopausal insomnia, and heavy periods. Heavy periods, almost regardless of the cause. So, adenomasis, or the most common cause of heavy periods in perimenopause is the shift to anovulation, the shift to ovulatory cycles or cycles when you make lots of estrogen, but no progesterone because progesterone normally has the effect of lightening flow of yeah, thinning uterine lining and preventing heavy periods. So that it can be a lifesaver at that time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what could be happening is your pituitary gland is sending messages to the, to the ovary saying, Hey, let's keep making these eggs. And this is my layman's terms of it describing it. And your ovaries are like, I'm good. I'm good this month. Let me double up next month though. I'll make up for it. And, so, <laughs> and then we end up getting this really, really heavy period. And it and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, because the ovarian follicles are not as responsive. So they're kind of they're trying to, they're on their way, which is how they make a lot of estrogen. But then they're like, yeah, I can't cross the finish line. Just can't get there. And just to say again, this is a normal part of perimenopause it's not it's really not a sign that you're aging too quickly or that something's wrong or that your ovaries are failing it's just this is at this age the ovarian follicles are just dialing down their ability to cross that finish line they're slowing down in some ways but they're unfortunately pumping out lots of estrogen they're pumping is- yeah because they're trying to yes, they're trying meet to the it, demand yeah. of the brain and yeah. like keep
1: it going yeah it, there's this it's like a um a very a very heavy discussion
0: between yeah. the ovaries that's a nice and- analogy yeah <laughs> professor Pryor, the endocrinologist who helped me with my book calls it a grand finale or the fireworks show in the ovaries they're trying to do what they were supposed to be doing and they just basically just making lots of estrogen and almost no progesterone
1: yeah and that's a heavy bleeding so okay so those are the three yes those are the three kind of identifying places and i would say that majority of women at least that i connect with these are things that these are absolutely things that they're dealing with the migraines
0: the heavy bleeding then they feel disruptive in this process i'm going to mention the hormonal iud because i may have mentioned it to your audience before i'm not sure but it's it's worth mentioning because a lot of women will be turning to that for heavy periods understandably recommended yeah pill just the pill pill yeah well the pill pill yeah i would argue well obviously i would argue that there are ways to do this and address symptoms without contraceptive drugs of any form then in the book i also talk about the fact that if you're going to take any contraceptive drugs or progestins then the hormonal iud is arguably a more logical one to do because it's works locally in the uterus it doesn't suppress ovulation always although it sometimes does so you can still cycle get the benefits of your natural menstrual cycle which is still beneficial in our 40s it's not like when you're done having babies you don't need your menstrual cycle anymore in the book i make the case that you should chapter three it's called cycle while you can you know kind of keep it going as long as you can and the hormonal iud can permit that just to be clear there's no progesterone in the hormonal iud despite the fact that it's sometimes called that. That's a drug called levonogestrel, which lightens flow. As a final just comment about the hormonal IUD and progesterone, it is possible to use both the hormonal IUD and to take progesterone as well to help with migraine prevention or sleep. So it doesn't have to be an either or situation. I get asked that question a lot and I do say it in the book, but only like in one sentence. So I'm just trying to put it out there too, that that's, that's a possibility.
1: I'm just going to paint the picture really quickly for kind of explaining all that. One, that you and I are in agreement that it is possible to manage those symptoms that we mentioned, um, especially with the increase in estrogen, without hormone therapy or without, without, without synthetic hormone therapy or without being on the pill or even an IUD. However, if symptoms get worse and you have exhausted these other options that we talk about a lot on social media or in our podcast or inside the books then the next step when you when it comes to the least invasive option even of synthetic hormones is the IUD then if that for some reason doesn't handle business then then you can step into taking the pill which is more systemic it's systemic it's not just local before maybe you move into other, we're talking about heavy bleeding, maybe it's fibroids. I don't, you know, depending on what's going on, then we've it, it keeps on
0: scaling up to more Yeah, invasive. I would say amongst my patients, and I was sure it should never reach the level of needing the pill. Like that would be very unusual. Um, Professor Pryor, again, just to quote her, like she's pretty clear that perimenopause is not a time to take the pill. But you know, no, I agree. So we're we're totally on the same page and that's good clarity to give everyone. To yeah. And I just
1: mean if they're just like pill or hysterectomy. Or a pill or like, you know, I'm just saying, sometimes things get really drastic and you're, these are the, you know, you should, you should advocate, hopefully we're educating you to advocate for the least invasive option. And you're saying, I actually, this is what I want. Cause they may not even offer an IUD, but you may just say, Hey, could I get an IUD instead? And so I was just giving clarity in, in so many of the conversations that I've heard from patients and, and, and readers of like, these were my options. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's go back. Okay. Sure. Okay, let's talk a little bit about estrogen. You know, okay. I know that you know one. It it she tends to be the star of the show. I call yeah. her the Beyonce of the The hormones. Beyonce, I like that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes she is. There's a really beautiful light put on her. Other times she's villainized. And what I really love in this conversation is just the fact of the facts. Estrogen is going to increase due to the wind down of our ovaries, right? And the the grand, I love the grand finale, the grand, yeah. the big fireworks show. Yeah. Um. As we're as the Fourth of July is about to happen yeah. here in the states, you know, it that, that feels very appropriate. And so, you know, in in. managing that, you know, and I I really feel that's where so much of the discomfort comes from is when we're dealing with a lot of flooding of estrogen. What are some of your recommendations around kind of supporting estrogen during this transition?
0: In the book, I talk a lot about the intersection, how estrogen interacts with the immune system and creates this mast cell or histamine response, which then in turn creates more estrogen unfortunately it actually stimulates the ovaries to make more estrogen so one of the interventions i will do is to try to calm down a histamine or mast cell response kind of an inflammatory immune response if that's happening that usually looks like dairy-free so i do talk about quite a bit about i don't think every sick woman needs to be dairy-free but i think at least probably one in three women with you know heavy periods or symptoms of this you know, having headaches, kind of fluid retention, rashes, that kind of thing. Breast pain can be associated with high histamine. And then in that case, I in my book and with my patients, I direct them to different types of dairy. So maybe stopping normal cow's dairy, you can still have butter, you can still have goat or sheep cheese. You can have something called A2 dairy if you can access it there. So that's one of my favorite recommendations. I also in the book talk about iodine, which is has an anti-estrogen effect, basically probably one of my favorite prescriptions, although you do have to be careful with iodine. So please, I direct people to, I've written about the safety, my thoughts about safety about iodine. I've written about that in both books, on my blog. So just don't be careful. Do not just go out and buy some iodine off the internet and start taking a big dose because some of the doses out there are huge. And too much iodine can harm your thyroid, but the right amount for you can lighten periods, help with adenomasis, like eliminate breast pain, which can be quite helpful. I also in the book talk about, with regards to high estrogen, the role of the guts in clearing estrogen. I think a lot of people are starting to understand this. I'm sure you've yes, written about yes. it and talked about it at length. We talk like, about a lot. The yeah. estrobolum. Pooping. Yeah. Girl,
1: we talk about yeah. pooping. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Moving it out. Yeah. I say use it and lose it is kind of yeah. my mindset around estrogen.
0: Sure. That's, that's how estrogen exits the body. And so there are lots of ways to Support that. Having a healthy microbiome is a big part of that. Moving your bowels regularly. Absolutely. The other thing that can support that healthy detoxification of estrogen is, now we come to a sad topic, (laughs) is no alcohol. Real talk. Yeah. Yes. Can we just, can we just highlight that for
1: just a second? Please, by all means, riff on the no alcohol piece.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Alcohol does lots of bad things to us, especially during perimenopause or second puberty. One of the things is that it impairs the healthy detoxification or clearance of estrogen quite profoundly. Alcohol also causes intestinal permeability, which is another, you know, creates inflammation in the body. Your, Your listeners are familiar with that. Concept leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Alcohol is just generally not good for the brain. And cycling back to the way alcohol increases estrogen, that translates into a breast cancer risk. So here's an interesting statistic that I am trying to get out there moderate alcohol intake, like even just a few drinks in a week, increases the risk of breast cancer as much or more than estrogen therapy. So Again, not to say that everyone needs to take estrogen therapy, but just to kind of position those two risks. And a lot of women are quite frightened of estrogen, but alcohol is in that same territory. So that would be an argument for seriously reducing alcohol or quitting it, which is what I actually recommend during these second puberty years. Because now going back to the brain, the way alcohol affects the brain, second puberty or perimenopause is a neurological transition primarily. It affects lots of things. You know insulin metabolism, which we might get to. It affects you know heavy periods. It affects lots of things. But the center of it is the way the brain changes. I have a chapter called "Rewiring the Brain," recalibration of the brain during perimenopause, and alcohol makes that a lot harder. So removing alcohol can improve sleep quite dramatically. It can sometimes be one of the only things you have to do to get rid of hot flashes and night sweats. I know there are lots of, at least a few people listening going, I don't want to hear that. It's not what I want to hear, but it's, it's just really important message. And we're, and now with our conversation, we're hopefully trying to counteract a lot of the unfortunate messaging out there about wine for women and how women, you know, how these images of women drinking wine and that's how you relax and it's how you get through menopause. And I just, I just find that so sad and so concerning that those images are out there because yeah, wine is not helping us or wine or any alcohol. No, wine is not.
1: It's damaging. And I think, you know, if anyone listening and they're bristling up and they're just like, "Ah, oh, don't you dare take my wine. I just want you to, th- I just want you to tap in to the next morning, tap into how you feel the next morning and be really, really honest with yourself about how, you know, are you feeling sluggish, low energy, brain fogged, irritable, is your digestion not filling 100%? Are you able, to, not able to focus as well that day? You know, these are the things that you should be looking out for. It doesn't have to feel like a hangover. It just has to feel like blah. And that that's that's alcohol affecting you, your ability to function. And the hot flashes and all the other things. And, and, and it's driving insulin resistance. I mean, there's all kinds of other things behind the scenes that
0: uh, may not be as obvious. For sure. Yeah, no, it's yeah. So I hope people are inspired to at least kind of revisit it and break up with it. Break up with alcohol if you need to, if it's that kind of um, not a good friend, (laughs) you know, a toxic friend, basically.
1: Yeah, and even give it 30 days. Just give it thirty days. You know, maybe just devote a month to no alcohol and and see how you feel. You know, and I think that's usually so often. Like, we, if we can take a chunk of time off, especially if as women, you know, and feel how we feel without that substance, I think you're. It's like it literally will feel like night and day. No, good. Yes. Well, okay check that one off the list. Okay. I want to segue into, so any other recommendations for estrogen? So clearing, making sure the detox pathways are working.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so many other things. I mean, phytonutrients and like enough healthy prebiotics or fiber in the gut. There's a, a supplement called calcium deglucarate, which I prescribe a lot to my patients, which helps with healthy estrogen clearance or detoxification. There's lots you can do.
1: Love it. Love it. Love it. Love your liver. Love your liver. I always say this, you know, love it, <laughs> and don't love it with wine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then I want to segue in to insulin resistance. Uh, insulin over. She's over here. You know, and we 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 are not paying. Close enough attention to her. I think the modern medical system, at least what I've observed, is we are very much on the white watch and wait train. And we're watching and waiting. And we see, we maybe we're not even looking at insulin resistance at all. Then we start to see you crawling into prediabetes. And then, and we say watch and wait, watch and wait, watch and wait. And then, bam—you've got, you know, you, you've got type two diabetes. This is the the worst case scenario of this of this situation. But there's a lot of symptomology. There's a lot of not feeling great, even when we just have
0: insulin resistance. It's very central to the perimenopause story. So, as you would have seen in, in Hormone Repair Manual, I just talk about it. Again and again and again. So one of the things to say about it, I've just talked about how the brain has to recalibrate or rewire. It's like a software update that happens with the brain. It's pretty crucial, actually, because if the brain can't do this update recalibration successfully, what the research shows, unfortunately, is the brain is kind of going down the road to dementia a couple decades later. So the stakes are high. This is not just about feeling better, not having night sweats or hot flashes. This is actually about your brain health for the next few decades, and insulin resistance plays a role because we get—I'll try to say this as carefully as I can. Um, in the late in phase four of perimenopause, when estrogen finally drops, all cells in the body, including in the brain, lose some of their ability to turn glucose into energy. So we get this up to twenty-five percent in drop in brain energy, which is crazy. This is what they're seeing on the brain scans. This is why we've, like the example I give in the book, I forgot where I parked my car, you know, one time it's, you know, we start missing it, mixing up words. And this does happen to all women to some extent, but then it's, it should be, it should be temporary as the brain recalibrates to being able to use ketones for energy more of the time. It's about having metabolic flexibility, to do that and then if your brain can if the cells can do that if the brain can do that it comes up the other side in this new kind of efficient mode of using ketones which means tapping into the body fat stores to get the energy it needs if the brain can't make that transition i guess the brain and everywhere in the body can't make that sort of transition to having more metabolic flexibility and not being as reliant on estrogen for glucose burning then long term health problems can come and the thing that the number one thing that interferes with this transition to metabolic flexibility is insulin resistance if that makes sense insulin resistance that that level of kind of meta- metabolic dysfunction if that's present it makes it really hard for the brain recalibration for the metabolism recalibration and it's i think where a lot of the symptoms come from actually so i i make the case that having insulin resistance makes perimenopausal symptoms worse particularly hot flushed hot flashes and night sweats and at the same time the final phase of perimenopause promotes insulin resistance so it becomes a vicious cycle which can be corrected so it's not like it's all hopeless but the, the correction starts by identifying what's going on and that starts by diagnosing insulin resistance and the way I diagnose it is to with a a test for insulin, the hormone insulin. So just to, so everyone is clear, having a normal glucose test from your doctor does not mean you don't have insulin resistance. It cannot rule out. Your sugar could be normal, but you still have this underlying problem with insulin or chronically high insulin or underlying metabolic dysfunction that shows up as chronically high insulin. I, I know that's kind of technical. I guess at the end of the day, what I would say is, get tested for insulin resistance. If you can, my preferred test is uh, doing the oral glucose tolerance test with insulin. So not just measuring glucose, but measuring the hormone insulin. So fat, measuring it in fasting, and then you have the sugar drink and then you measure it at one in two hours. If you can't access that test, then at least a fasting insulin can be helpful. So I have in the book um, sections about how to talk to your doctor. So hope you know, you can look at those, how to talk to your doctor about insulin resistance. I'll talk about some of the the signs and symptoms of insulin resistance, which is weight yes, around the middle. Let's talk about it.
1: Yeah. Because I'm going to, let's just, you know, and the testing, I think testing is so critical and and don't, you know, don't guess if you can. But I know a recent study that I had read is that at least in the U.S. that 88% of adults have some level of metabolic dysfunction. That leaves only 12% of us who don't. And so it, I would say that it's safe to say that, you know, our, with our protective hormones dropping and that we're already becoming just like even pregnancy, right? We, we become more naturally insulin resistant during pregnancy. And um, and and hence, and we're looking at that, you know, I remember, I remember, I think we talked about this when I, I had my, my fasting glucose test and I was just told I was going to fail it. Like, she's like, you're, this is how old you are and this is, you're pregnant and you're going to fail. <laughs> like there's, I don't see women in at 40 and older, even late thirties who don't fail this test. And I just want to, and I know people have heard this, me say this, but I passed it. So, you know, and so I cause I had been dialing in my metabolic health for so long, but so let's talk about some of those symptoms and let's just say safely that this is just something we should all be mindful of and we should be pivoting lifestyle to know that our brain is making this massive shift and we should give it all the support it needs to to make to
0: make that transition as easy as possible. Sure. All of us with menopause, with the arrival, that phase four paramenopause perimenopause and menopause, all of us do shift in the direction of insulin resistance. Some of us may not go all, you know, you may or may not be all fully into insulin resistance. 12% of us. Yeah, you're shifting in that direction. So yeah, so symptoms abdominal weight gain, that classic kind of apple-shaped weight gain. The other ones I typically flag are high triglycerides on a blood test. Fatty liver is usually... Fatty liver can be caused by other things, but if your doctor has mentioned fatty liver because of a blood test or an ultrasound, then that's often downstream from insulin resistance. You get um, something called skin tags, darkening of the skin on the neck and under the arms. And yeah, so those are some of the kind of giveaways that insulin resistance is happening oh a a history of gestational diabetes a history of pcos a family history of type 2 diabetes because there is a genetic component it's not fair but you know some women just tend more to it it's it's just a, a sad reality basically some people are genetically sheltered from it it's kind of the luck of the draw unfortunately that way but it's actually the way we see it is actually people who are genetically prone to insulin resistance are descendants of people who were survivors, like awesome at surviving kind of feminine and were able to keep going, keep reproducing, even when there was low food intake, which made for a hard life. These you know, genes that help them to do that are in an evolutionary mismatch with our modern world. If that makes sense. Yeah.
1: They're not serving us today. Like they yeah. were They're not, they're not helping the today,
0: unfortunately. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those people. Yes. So my, my people survived. Yes. And now I'm one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I, have a, I have a predisposition to type 2 diabetes. And the sooner we get to, and the sooner we know these things, I think it's important too as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I love the symptomology. I think other symptoms that I see too are cr- like cravings cravings and, and brain fog. And, you know, those can, those are way much more earlier kind of symptoms. But I think the big thing is, is the weight resistance and the the belly fat is where I find that women are like, what is going on? And um, that can be a, a, a an early indicator of, of insulin resistance. I agree. Yeah. And we know, as you mentioned, estrogen goes and a major layer of protection yes. goes away as well. And that's naturally gonna happen. So, Laura Honey, how do you how do you set us up for success? How do we how do we begin to pivot? And and could we start pivoting in our mid thirties? Can yes. we start thinking
0: about that then? Sure. It's all about building resilience in the nervous system, in metabolism, in metabolic flexibility. That would be in the general maintenance chapter of my book where it's, you know, having all the, all the things, right. That we talk about all the time. So healthy gut, healthy circadian rhythm, healthy nervous system, reducing stress, cutting alcohol, taking magnesium. That's, you know, my one recommendation. I'm kind of like, if you take one supplement, let it be magnesium, except there's a very few situations when maybe you need to talk to your pharmacist or doctor about whether magnesium is safe for you, but it is safe for most people. Yeah. And, you know, get sleep and move outside and all these things. And then you might find that you might find after even hearing all the horror stories about perimenopause, you may get into it and actually find you're fine. Um, the other one, Yeah. Maybe movement building muscle is actually quite important for maintaining insulin yes, sensitivity.
1: We need, we want that muscle mass. We start to decline that too.
0: Yeah. And then, and then depending on how it's all going, potentially looking at, you know herbal medicines and different supplements i talk about in the book and potentially paying what you're needing there is the option of hormone therapy either in the form of kind of progesterone alone or in the phase four of perimenopause and a little bit beyond and estrogen in a patch form I'll, just, I'll say kind of in closing like if you're going to take estrogen therapy and it's understandable if you you know have reached that point where you need it it's so much safer taking the patch or gel like transdermally through the skin rather than the old style kind of pills in general. And in the book in the book, I, I list all the different brand names of different hormone therapies and kind of what they contain and what they are.
1: Mm, love it. Love it. I think you've given us such a great, such a beautiful way of looking at this transition. And, you know, a way to just, you know, see it in a really positive light and but then also just have awareness and then be able to begin to implement. Because I think there's a lot of things. Is you and I both know our bodies are are changing. Like you said, second puberty. We're in that parallel. We're on the we we're declining, but that doesn't mean de- declining cellular age. No, we're not declining. our Our hormones are changing. But yeah, so, yeah, not, uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we're declining, <laughs> but that we can make we can make these beautiful pivots and we can make these changes, knowing that our body is changing and we get a change along with it. And I, that's what I that's the message I've always loved that you have brought to the forefront is, here's the reality of these changes. And, you know, here is how we can set ourselves up for success. But what these changes are not, this is not it's synonymous as of just aging. This is not aging at all. This was always the plan.
0: Exactly. I love your phrasing. That's beautiful.
1: We want to go check you out. One, we we, we want to go get the book. And I know that you have a gift,
0: which is the, I, I don't know if it's the first two chapters or if it's... The, first yes. two two, okay. the introduction and the first two chapters of my new book, Hormone Repair Manual. So that's available to everyone who listened today? I think you'll, you'll get um, be, sent, be sent that link. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me. I always love chatting with you. I know, of course, you have a book about perimenopause as well. So, I mean, I'm sure all your followers already know that. I'm going to check it out. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I'm very keen yeah, to. We need to you get you a
1: copy. We yeah. need to send you one. And we will do that. And then also go go to laurabryden.com. That's the best place. Your blog is phenomenal. I mean, she just does such a. The book is everything. Get the book. But blog the blogs. You know that they're, they are little. They're like really amazing little tasters of what you're going to get in the book. And then you are you are on social media. Maybe not as active as you used to be, but you are very much on social media. And I think you did a phenomenal job there as well. And so please go please go check out Laura, especially if you were loving this conversation and it's just felt more like the kind of conversation you want to be having this is what she does every day thanks so much yeah but thanks thanks again everyone
0: for listening
1: i would say that it's pretty clear that laura and i are very aligned in one of the most important transitions that we women go through and i personally feel that this is such a major marker in our lives really because of the timing right smack in the middle of our busiest time of our lives we begin to experience some major changes with our bodies. And if we don't adapt to those changes, we find ourselves feeling exhausted, brain fogged, irritable, and holding on to some serious, stubborn weight. Now, one of the things both Laura and I see a lot when it comes to women navigating their forties and beyond is increased insulin resistance. And we touched upon that during the interview and how this specific hormonal imbalance can lead to a host of other issues, including systemic inflammation. Now, in her newest book, she breaks down the root causes to some of the biggest hormone imbalances that happen during perimenopause and offers practical solutions that you can implement them literally from your home. And that is exactly what I love to see. Solutions that we can begin to implement inside of our own home that are easy, manageable, and that we can do on a daily basis. Now, to get a taste of what she has to offer in her newest book, she is gifting all of us a free download to two of her chapters in the Hormone Repair Manual. I'm gonna have the link in the show notes for the free two chapters, but also I'll have the link to Amazon to go and buy the book just straight out directly. I wanna say thank you so much for joining me today on the Essentially You podcast. This show is about providing tools to rock your hormones and, as we talked about today, feeling amazing in your body. Now, if there is someone that you know that really needs to hear this episode today, take a moment, screenshot it, and send it their way, or share it on social to continue to spread the word about hormone literacy. Now, if you share it on social, be sure to hashtag Hormone Literacy or Hormone CEO. Now, coming up, I have an amazing episode this Friday. I'm going to be talking about five surprising ways to know if you're dealing with fatty liver disease and then how to prevent it. There are over 10, to 10, 100 million people dealing with fatty liver disease today. It used to be super uncommon, but now it is a major, major issue. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can love our liver and make sure that we prevent any issues around liver disease. Until then, have an amazing, amazing week. Talk to you soon.